0: me and your Bibles to first Timothy <clears throat> chapter one I'll be reading verses 12 through seventeen I'll actually I'll back up to verse um, Eight. <clears throat> Just to remind you of the context. Now, I'll, I'll go all the way back to the beginning. We'll read, we'll read the verse 17 verses. Sorry for being so indecisive. This is the word of the Lord. Reverently listen as he speaks to you uh, through my voice. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I mentioned to you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we need your help. I need your help, these folks in front of me and who are watching remotely need your help. Lord, for if you, Holy Spirit, are not in this, uh, there will be no prophet that comes to us. But Lord, our prophet uh, is not as important as your glory. Um, And you, in order for this to be a God-glorifying event, if I can put it that way, Lord, you need to be our preacher, Lord Jesus. Um, you need to be our Illuminator, Holy Spirit, and you need to be present, Father. Would you please do all the above, and would you please speak to us now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, have you ever tried to prove something, um, some, something that you were trying to prove? Have you ever tried to prove something to someone? And taking some time to do that. One of the best ways to prove something, is, you know, maybe a statement that you're making or uh, some, something event that you're trying to say is true or happened. One of the best ways to prove something is true is by offering evidence that whatever you're trying to prove is true is in fact true. When you offer evidence to prove something, you want to use the very best evidence that you have to make your point, right? I'll give you an example. Let's say one of your playmates is with you and you go out to a tree and maybe there's a tree in your yard that's like this. Maybe not. Maybe it's some other tree, but just imagine a tree for a moment. Say a little friend of yours and you go out to this, some tree and you point to a branch, a lower branch on the tree, um, that you could get up to if you climb the tree and your friend says to you, I don't know if I want to climb up there. I'm scared to sit on that branch. It might break. But you know something that your friend doesn't know. And so what you say to your friend is to prove to him or her, it'll be okay if you sit on that branch. What you do is, you'd say something like this. If you had seen this, let's say this had happened in the past. You say to your friend, your child friend, my dad, who weighs 200 pounds, let's just say that's what your dad's weight is, I don't know. But my dad has climbed up that tree and he sat on that branch and it didn't break. You are much smaller than my dad. Both you and I are. We can go up there and we can sit on that branch. Maybe one at a time, but it's not going to break. It held my dad. So you see, that would be evidence to prove to your friend. Look, it's 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 definitely going to hold you. I, I give you that a story, children, that's made up story because it's kind of like what's going on here in this account. The apostle Paul is trying to prove something to. Timothy, but not just to Timothy, to the people in Timothy's congregation in Ephesus, and indeed to anybody who reads his letter. And what he's trying to prove is that the gospel, that Christ's mercy, Jesus' mercy, and God's mercy is big enough to forgive anybody who wants it. And so what he does is, he says, I'm going to prove this to you. And he points to his own Life as evidence that if God can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. And that's his proof. And that's part of what's going on in this passage this morning, as you'll hear, as we move through it. Before I get to the the points of the sermon, the main points, I want to just uh, give you a little bit of background here. Uh, Paul, you heard me read in verse 11 at the end of it, Paul makes the statement, um, he speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And that assertion that Paul makes there in verse 17 that he has been he himself has been entrusted by God with the gospel, is what now prompts him to write what he's writing in the section we're looking at today, which is verses 12 through 17. There we go. And and so he is. He is jumping off from his statement that he's just made about having been entrusted, uh, Paul having been entrusted with uh, the glorious gospel of God. And in this section that we're looking at today, the apostle, what he does here is he demonstrates how this entrusting of the gospel to him by God and the Lord Jesus' bestowal of his saving mercy upon Paul the foremost of sinners, as, well, as he says, that these two things provide a superb example, himself being these two things that God has done for him, entrusting the gospel to him and forgiving him, is a superb example of the truth that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for any repentant sinner who puts his trust in Christ, no matter how wicked that sinner has been in his past. In other words, what Paul is doing here, he's he's saying the triune God's willingness to be merciful to a wretch like me serves as exhibit A of the confirmation of this truth that I'm telling you, that God can forgive anybody who comes to him in faith, comes to Christ in faith. And he points himself out. He says, I am exhibit A, which is really the title of this sermon, but you don't have that in uh, in the bulletin, but that's what the title is. Paul undoubtedly writes what he does here about God's enormously gracious dealings with him personally to encourage young Timothy to continue holding fast to this gloriously good news, which is the gospel, which saves wretches like Paul and others, but also to encourage Timothy to vigorously oppose those false teachers that we read of in the first seven verses there. Whose use of the Mosaic law to promote speculations and myths of their own devising was undermining that very glorious gospel that Paul and Timothy were entrusted with. Paul in a special way because he was an apostle, but it was it was undermining the cause of the gospel in and around Ephesus by these accretions that these and and made up fanc- fanciful uh, uh, accretions that these uh, false teachers were adding to the uh, Christian message and. Uh, or actually, they weren't, they weren't probably promoting the Christian message, but to, but to the Mosaic Law, and their focus on the Mosaic Law, and, and their guesses, reading between the lines, if you will, uh, to, and using it that way. So, he's writing to Timothy, and there are three main points that we're going to pull from this uh, text today. They are as follows. First, the superabundance of God's mercy is evident from what God did for Paul. Secondly, the superabundance of God's mercy is offered to any sinner who trusts Christ. By the way, the first point is verses 12 through 14. The second point is verses 15 and 16. The superabundance of God's mercy is offered to any sinner who trusts Christ. And then the third point comes from verse 17. The superabundance of God's mercy should prompt all believers to break forth in unrestrained praise. So let's look at these points together. First, the superabundance of God's mercy is evident from what he did to Paul. What Paul means, by the way, if you look at the text carefully, verse 13, Paul says, in the, after he describes his former sinful behaviors and actions, he says, "...and yet I was shown mercy." uh because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And also back in in verse sixteen, and yet for this reason I found mercy. Uh, Those are the same words, of course, in Greek. And mercy, oftentimes in Scripture, usually in Scripture, um, in the New Testament, is a reference to God's willing to show God's willingness to show pity upon somebody who is uh, afflicted or or oppressed or um, or depressed or or dejected and that's usually the 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 meaning of of mercy it relates to the 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 object of the mercy being uh in in distress in some way shape or form but it's not always does it always mean that and here's an example of where i don't think it does mean that it, it means it yes it means that but it means more than that when paul uses the word mercy the word mercy here is more like what Paul means, but when he uses the word grace elsewhere, the grace of God, uh, and here uh, it uh, mercy is being used synonymously with grace. So, what he means by uh, he, God has shown me mercy, or I have found mercy, is evident from what he says in this context here, in this immediate context surrounding the, the two occurrences of the word. What he's referring to when he speaks of being shown mercy is he was referring to the fact that God, first of all, from verse 14, had united him to Christ in the sphere of love and faith. It also entails the mercy shown to him, the fact that God, or that Christ rather, had saved him from the power and penalty of his sins, as as evidenced from what he says in verse 15. The mercy of God that he has received is also a reference to the fact that God has granted him the gift of eternal life, which is referenced in verse sixteen. And the grace, uh, the mercy of God, uh, what that means, also refers to the fact that Christ has counted him trustworthy or considered him faithful and put him into service, as is evidenced uh, or as is described there in verse twelve. All these things, I think, here at least is what Paul means by Paul having received mercy. And he uses the word twice. Um, and there are, other, there are other things in here where you can see it's, it's kind of there parallel uh, parallels going on. And clearly mercy is the point that Paul is making. But again, used a little differently than he normally uses the term and others do as well. So all of these above things uh, that I've mentioned are ways in which God has shown mercy to Paul a man who, prior to his conversion, we are told, was a vicious enemy of Christ. You read that in verse 13, the first part. He's described as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, and as a violent aggressor. Blasphemer is somebody who slanders, uh, abuses, or defames God, or God's name, or God's truth. He was such a person. If we, uh, the most helpful passage for seeing this is probably Acts chapter twenty-six, verses nine and following, where we read this about Paul's. Uh, he's recounting his uh, unbelieving days and his activity, and he says there in verses nine uh, through eleven of Acts twenty-six. So then I thought of myself. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Is this the right passage? Yes, I think it is. Uh, And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried, here it is, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign Cities and obviously he did to Damascus and we know what happened there. He himself was a blasphemer, trying to get other people to uh, believers to blaspheme the name of God as he himself did, and to blaspheme the name of Christ because, of course, he was denying that Christ was the Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures, which is blasphemous. He was also a persecutor of God's people. In fact, Saul's persecution of believers was Jesus' chief complaint, you recall, against him when he confronted him on the road to Damascus. He mentioned specifically the persecution of his people. He says, You're persecuting me by persecuting my people. Notice the equation of the people persecution of the people with the persecuting Christ. It's interesting to think about. Um, and uh, this is evident uh, from the passage I just read you, but also from uh, Acts 22, verse 4, a different recollection of his past where he says, And I persecuted this way, meaning Christianity, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And he goes on there. He persecuted God's people. He hated them because he hated God and he hated Jesus. And finally, he was a violent aggressor. This kind of, in some ways, uh, uh, is a little bit overlap with what's uh, come before. But but the, the emphasis here is on the utter disregard that he had for the rights uh, and dignity of other people made in the image of God. He had no regard for their, for their rights. And again, the Acts 26 passage makes that point uh, eloquently. But despite the enormity of Paul's offenses against the triune God, as evidenced uh, uh, in uh, his in verse thirteen, yet Christ was willing to and indeed did choose to regard Paul as a trustworthy servant of His. Verse twelve: I thank uh, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because He considered me faithful. Now here, Paul doesn't mean that at the point when he was converted which by the way is probably what he's talking about there he, uh he cons- he strengthened me because he considered me faithful he's probably talking about his point of conversion but it doesn't mean that at the point of conversion he uh that somehow he had already proven himself faithful to God or to Christ that's not the point there rather what the apostle paul is probably doing here he appears to be saying that um the Lord was willing to regard him as worthy of trust from the point when he gave him a new heart onward. That's probably what he's saying. Not that he'd somehow demonstrated faithfulness uh, because he was a, a zealous Jew. Uh, but rather, uh, from the moment he was converted onward, that he uh, regarded Paul as with trust, or he, as worthy of trust uh, <clears throat> from other men, and, and perhaps even from God himself from that moment onward and that this was a (coughs) demonstration of Christ's unfathomable mercy and kindness, that he would regard such a man as Paul, a uh, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and and give him a new heart, and then immediately consider him a trustworthy man, and view him as such. But secondly, not only was God's mercy uh, evident in his willingness to do this to Paul, to uh, uh, regard him as trustworthy, but secondly further that mercy was evident in the fact that Jesus wanted this foremost of sinners to be his special servant to be his special servant not merely a convert a lowly convert you know I lowly an average convert but a an extraordinary convert with an extraordinary mission this divine messianic king our savior commissioned his former arch enemy paul saul he was saul at that point to be one of his apostles, to be one of his special ambassadors to the entire earth, and particularly for Paul, to the entire earth. Uh, He chose Paul to be one of those 13 individuals upon whom he himself would build the new covenant expression of the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. He would be that foundation. He and the other 12 uh, men would be the foundation of the New Testament church. And Jesus... Chose him to do that. This wicked man, formerly wicked man, appointed to be the servant of Christ, one of the foremost servants of Jesus, his king and his savior. There has never been nor ever will be an honor in this world that even comes close in terms of magnitude to Paul's honor of being chosen to be an apostle of Christ. Paul, the foremost of sinners. Again, his mercy, Christ's mercy, God, the triune God's mercy, on on glorious display, and its incomprehensibility, is on glorious display in his willingness to use somebody like Paul, uh, Saul, I should say, making him Paul, and making him one of his 13 apostles. What can we learn from this point uh, that Paul makes? Well, first of all, notice in verse 13 what he says. Um, Is it verse 13? No, it's verse 15. Sorry. got my numbers wrong here. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Notice he says, "Of whom I am, of whom I am foremost," as he's writing this. He doesn't say, "Of whom I was foremost." You note that; it's important to note. And there's a lesson that's instructive. You see, even though the guilt of And the power of Paul's past sins had been blotted out by the mercy of God in Christ. That's absolutely the case. He was a justified believer, been declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by God himself for Christ's sake. Paul yet remained acutely aware of the fact that he was still a sinner who was far from perfect. And were it not for Christ worthy of eternal destruction. And this statement makes that point. <clears throat> now, I don't think it's appropriate for Christians to hate themselves and, oh, woe is me, I'm such a terrible person, I'm such a miserable sinner, blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's biblical. But likewise, I don't think it's biblical to forget that we're sinners saved by grace. And we're still sinners saved by grace and I think we should emulate Paul we should um, think of ourselves in in, in, uh, in exactly the way Paul thought of himself I am still a sinner I'm still that man who did those things even though I've been forgiven of I'm still that man and I'm still a sin- sinful like that man post uh, pre pre-conversion there's still part of me that's him This is, I think, um, how we keep ourselves appropriately humbled as Christians. We need to remind ourselves of this regularly. And yes, that we are children of of God, loved and forgiven, and and uh, and uh, royal sons and daughters. All needs to be in the mix. But so too does the I'm a sinner, still, and I still offend God regularly by my sin. A second lesson. Uh, which which uh, brings me to my second point, and that is this. If the mercy of the triune God is great enough to allow him to be merciful to the likes of such a hard-boiled sinner as Saul, it is great enough to enable him to forgive any sinner who f- cries out to him for his mercy, his saving mercy. And that's that's the second point. The superabundance of God's mercy is offered to any sinner who trusts in Jesus. Paul moves from talking about his own particular God's dealings, Christ's dealings with him in particular in verses 12 through 14 where he uses first person singular pronouns repeatedly describing himself, speaking of himself. He moves from speaking speaking to his own particular case in verses 12 through 14, to proclaiming a general truth in verses 15 and 16, where he employs plural pronouns. So he's going from describing himself and Christ's dealings with him to what Christ will do for others, uh, to this general truth. What is that general truth? We read it there in verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that's the general statement and then he points to himself as an example of how he can, if he's going to save me he can save anybody of whom I am foremost but the Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners by the way that appears to be a a, uh, a summary statement that the early church had already utilized widely to describe the gospel in a nutshell uh, it's, a, it's a shorthand for the gospel that the early church appears to have come up with. and when he says uh, it's a trustworthy statement, it's actually a, it probably is better translated a trustworthy statement. I mean not statement saying a trustworthy saying, meaning it was a saying that had was circulating already when Paul was writing this. and he's saying that's a trustworthy saying uh, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like Paul, and sinners like you and me as well. He came, in other words, we use the word saved. What does that mean? It means to be rescued. To be rescued from the tyrannizing power and horrifying penalty of our sinful life. That's what it means. And God, Jesus, rather, came to rescue people. From from what? From the devil and his pitchfork? No. From the wrath of, of himself, his own wrath. There's a sense in which the grace of God rescues us from the judgment, justice of God. <clears throat> Gotta be careful not to divide God up when you're doing that, but, but there's a truth to that. <clears throat> and Jesus came to save into this world um, to save sinners. This is one of the foremost. Purposes for which God the Son took up our humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, I say it's one of the foremost reasons or purposes because there's another one that's unspoken that's very closely related to it, but it's another purpose, and that is bringing honor and glory to God Himself. That is undoubtedly one of the foremost purposes, also. And the way that God wants to bring glory and honor to Himself is by saving sinners that's a principal way in which he wants to do that but it is a distinct purpose in addition to the purpose of saving humanity for his glory which is an additional uh, uh element to it <clears throat> but this is the uh it's offered to any any sinner the mercy of god the saving mercy of god which bring gives eternal life which forgives sin, which unites a person to Christ and transforms his or her life. But that unfathomable mercy is found, this statement in verse 15 indicates, only in one place, only in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. And he's the only source of that saving mercy. Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. No other Jesus will do. And there are lots of other ones, as I've said many times before. But only the Jesus who was and is 100% God and 100% man, and who is the only means of securing God's forgiveness and going to heaven, that Jesus is the only Jesus who will do. Who will uh, uh, will allow a person to receive be a recipient of God's mercy, and the person who receives God's mercy in Christ must do so through one instrument and one instrument alone, and that is faith. In verse sixteen, he says, "And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example." Notice for those who would believe in Him, for eternal life. The Reformers said repeatedly, faith is the sole instrument by which we are united to Christ and justified. Baptism isn't an instrument by which we are united to Christ and justified. Faith is. Faith alone. No work is involved but faith alone, in Christ alone. The person who is trusting in Christ is rel- relying upon him alone and not on anything else to make him or her, uh, to reconcile him or her to God, the triune God. It has to be Jesus alone and it has to be trust in him alone, not in some- Jesus plus something else. So let me ask, those listening, upon what are you relying or who are you relying to turn God's judicial wrath away from you? Is it Jesus alone? You see, it must be. Or you're going to go to hell for eternity. I will too. If it doesn't apply to me. Because we're all Wretched sinners, like Paul. We all deserve God's wrath. And the only way we won't get it is if another gets it. And that other is Jesus. And he got it. For all those who would believe on him on both sides of the cross. Be it the Old Testament saint, that's how he was saved. Or the New Testament saint, that's how we're saved. Faith in Christ alone. Is that what you have? Then thirdly, and finally, we've seen the superabundance of God's mercy is evident from what he did to Paul. That same uh, mercy is offered to any sinner who trusts Christ. And finally, the superabundance of God's mercy should prompt all believers to break forth in unrestrained praise to God. And that's verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Paul, you see, after pondering what Christ had done for him, what God had done for him in Christ, this is his response. It just kind of pops out of him, although it does throw through a quill, I guess. Because that's what he, he, he's... He's just overwhelmed with what God has done for him. <clears throat> with what God has done for him. And this is how he responds, Naturally. Paul praises him, first of all, praises God that he is, for his kingly rule, I'll put it, Uh, now to the king, eternal. Paul praises God that the universe's government is a monarchy and not a democracy or a republic. It's a monarchy. Yahweh is king. Nobody else. Yahweh and him alone. Now, I suspect that he is using these adjectives to describe the Lord uh, God, uh, the triune God, or perhaps God the Father. I suspect that Paul is using these adjectives purposefully. By that I mean that there's a connection between the attributes that he chooses to uh, praise God for and what he's just said about God's work in his life and the fact that he can do the same for any sinner who flees to Christ. So what might that Connection B, be between God's willingness to be merciful to Paul and other sinners and God's kingly rule. Well, I think, at least this is one of them, that if Yahweh, the God that he's praising, if he weren't in full control, if he weren't king and an absolute monarch, he might not be able to orchestrate and guarantee the salvation of those whom he might wish to save, like you or me, or Paul. The king, you see, the absolute king, who rules absolutely, gets it done. Unlike a vassal king, a, a, a underling, if you will, a lesser king. The real king, Yahweh, gets it done. He also praises uh, God for the fact that the the king, his kingly rule, is an everlasting rule. He has ruled in the past. He is ruling in the present, and he will rule forevermore, is Paul's point. And what might this everlasting rule, this eternal rule of God, why might that be something that came to his mind as he thought about God's mercy shown to him and others? Well, the fact that he rules in all ages, from beginning of time to the end of time, means that his decision, God's decision to bestow his saving mercy on his elect, can never and will never be overruled. Because he never abdicates. He never steps down. He never lets another take his place, who might be of a different mind. uh, God also delights not only in his kingly rule that is everlasting, but also he delights in and praises God for the fact that God himself is immortal. What does this mean? It means that God is one uh, who cannot be destroyed. He cannot perish, if you will. He cannot cease to be. What might this attribute have to do with his willingness to be merciful to sinners like himself? Well, like God's immortality, his imperishability guarantees that He will save us uh, that his will, rather, his will to save us. Uh, will never be overturned. Again, like the previous uh, attribute. If he's immortal, if if he can't cease to be, if he's always going to be that king who's eternally in charge, nothing's going to change. His will gets done and doesn't get undone, ever. He also rejoices that God is invisible, that he cannot be seen, this, by the way, was the thing in Sunday school where I was like, I'm not sure why God said that in relation to what, uh, what Paul was uh, rejoicing in his work in his life. But I figured it out, I think. I think. Perhaps Paul is, by th- uh, bringing up God's invisibility, is alluding to, I think likely, that he's alluding to the fact that God, Yahweh, is not like the gods of the pagans that are made of stone and wood and gold and silver. He's not one of those things. He's the God who is everywhere, who fills all in all and can't be seen because he's spirit. And therefore not a nothing like the Ammonite gods and the Moabite gods and the Philistine gods. And finally he rejoices in this uh, doxological uh, conclusion to this passage. He rejoices in that Yahweh alone is God. He describes him as the only God. You see, there are no other gods. Uh, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 uh, that uh, uh, sorry, I call it Shema. The, uh, the uh, Jewish uh, fundamental, most most fundamental declaration that a Jew can make today and back then as well, is, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And other passages similar to it over in Isaiah uh, 45. Actually, Isaiah 43. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. I am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. That's from 4310 and 11 45, uh, Isaiah 45 similarly um, verse 5, "I am the Lord and there is no other. besides me there is no God. And the New Testament makes similar uh, makes similar statements in Romans 3:29 uh, 1 Timothy 2 1 through 6 and uh, actually that's this passage no that's that's next week's passage and uh, colossians uh, i mean 1st corinthians chapter 8 verses 4 and 5 so what is the fact that yahweh alone is god why does that uh why does he bring that point up if you will in relation to the mercy shown to him and other sinners that he's willing to show because of course yahweh alone is the god of superabundant mercy and grace no other god jupiter's not like yahweh Zeus is not like Yahweh. Allah is certainly not like Yahweh. None of them. Like Yahweh. The All-Merciful One. And then Paul asserts that because Yahweh is this kind of God, He is therefore worthy of eternal honor and glory And praise. To him be the honor and the glory forever and ever. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, so Paul is making that point, but the Holy Spirit uh, is implicitly asserting through Paul's example here in verse 17 that Yahweh is worthy of exuberant and unceasing praise and worship from every Christian. From you and me. We are to do what Paul's doing in verse 17 through his quill, or whatever it is he was using to write. We are to follow his example. We are to see the superabundant mercy of God shown to us and go, Wow! That's the appropriate response, you see. Now, is it always our response? sad to say no. But it should be. It's what you should cultivate in your life this week and for the rest of your life. Lord, help me to, to be moved by what a gracious God you are and how much grace you've shown me. And to burst forth in praise and thanksgiving to him like the foremost of sinners did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, Paul. We thank you that uh, he was such a hard-boiled sinner before you converted him. That just goes to show you can Save anybody you want to save from any uh, degree of wickedness. Lord, you saved us. Some of us were pretty wicked in our B.C. days. And uh, still there's a whole lot of sin left in each one of us. We're so grateful, Lord, that you have saved us already. You have justified us. You have declared us to be righteous in the courtroom of heaven on account of Jesus, perfect obedience unto death, um, imputed or accredited to our moral account. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to save us by sanctifying us. And that you will not cease to save us that way uh, for the person who is truly your child. And we thank you, Lord, that you will save us to the uttermost on that day when you either return in glory to retrieve us or when you call us to heaven. Thank you that you came into the world to save sinners, to save us. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message here or uh, remotely who has never grasped that... Their only hope, his only hope, is Jesus, and that his filthy as his righteous deeds are like filthy rags to you, in terms of their worth without Christ. That you would cause such a one to see this, to feel the desperate situation that he is in, the danger that he's in, and that he would see the salvation that Christ and Christ alone can provide him with and that you would give him faith to flee to Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.